Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your host, Nat Strawn and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to episode 114 of Let's Get Haunted haunted. Welcome everybody and if you're brand new to the show and you want to hear the story from the title right away you should know that you can open up the show notes right now and look at the first sentence it'll say skip to this time to get to the story and you can skip to that time at any time to get to the story. Allie and I record personal intros where we thank our donors and clean house and sort of talk about personal hauntings that are going on during our week. Some people would call this banter other people would call it boring yeah and that's why we give you the choice exactly that way we're not in the wrong ever because it's (laughs) your fault if you listen and you don't like it yeah taking personal responsibility wow theme of the evening yes it is the theme of the evening so if at any time you're getting triggered and being like oh these girls are annoying this is stupid turn that back around to yourself you can open the show (laughs) notes and skip to the motherfucking time it says. Also, what's wrong with being stupid? That's very Intelli- smartest of you. Intelligist, yeah, of you, okay? We're very lovely women yeah. doing our best every day. I have a very exciting announcement. What is it? One of our listeners... Owen F. created a donor reading (gasps) song for us. Oh my god, so do we get to hear it? We get to hear it if my computer will play it at the same time. We might have to put it in post, you guys, but it's a really fucking sick song. Thank you so much to Owen F. Thank you so much, Owen F. I've been looking so forward to this. We have to play it in post because we can't play it while we're also recording because we don't have the technology to do that yet. That's right. You want to know why? Because my computer is from 2014 and could explode at any moment (laughs) but i would love to shout out our donors for this episode thank you very very much to michael r brianna m sarah d kara h kara h pamela c lady luna sydney and katie british cyborg mars sierra british cyborg again enrique and julie t rory l Madison Emily W, Kate N, and Courtney. And a very special shout out to our top donors on Kofi this month Jonna H, Deja Vudea, Peter Barker and Malik, Cindy, and Kelsey and Lucas H. Thank you guys very much. I'd also like to shout out donors Mariah C, Hazel B, Christiania E, Lindsay L, Gentry B. Sierra D and Allison S. Thank you guys so much for donating. We appreciate you guys so much. We're independent and we need Love you. (laughs) I was trying to make dynamite sounds because remember that one listener story where that guy blew himself up with dynamite and we were like, there's no way this is real. What? Do you not remember that? Did you block that out of your memory? Wait, re-describe it to me. What do you mean? We were reading listener stories episodes and somebody wrote in a listener story and said that they were from a town where their parcel of land that they had purchased used to belong to a guy. Remember, he, he like chopped up his kids or something oh, and, and fed, fed them, them to pigs. Okay, yeah, no, that was Game of Thrones. And then he blew himself up when the police came after him. And then we were both just in shock. And the only thing left was a shoe. And then later we realized it was Game of Thrones and someone had trolled us. The dynamite part I don't remember from Game of Thrones, but taking your unwanted inbred fetuses and like feeding them to 
uh, animals is definitely part of Game of Thrones because wow. there was this one guy that lived in the woods that had all these wives that were actually his children and then he had more kids with them and then he would feed them to those things that are bad that like the winter walkers or whatever they are. You know, I didn't really watch Game of Thrones, but may I ask you a question about this character? Perhaps. Did he have an unruly beard? He just was like a stock peasant. He was wearing like a potato sack with a like a rope around his waist and like brown boots and like lived in like a barn. Related, unrelated, you can tell me to stop. Some people, you know how you feel like when you go through a traumatic thing that like if you cut off your hair, you're cutting mm. off the bad stuff that happened, yeah. like the old hair. Mm-hmm. I wonder, do people with beards feel that? Like they're like, oh, this was the worst summer ever. And then they shave their beard off and they're like, it's a new me. I, I, I don't bet have you, that. I bet you that is anymore. a mentality because there are definitely people in sports. I know there was like a baseball pitcher for the Giants who wouldn't shave his beard. Because it was good luck. Yeah. yeah it's like that but uh, the opposite maybe like if they're doing really bad they're like okay it's time to shave this fucking beard off but they're not because they're men so they like never think they're doing bad that's true so they're like no it can't be me that's love- causing yeah, problems yeah every single pitch resulted in a home run for the other team that's not my fault right Moving my team on. sucks yeah well to tell you i'm very excited to hear your episode for today did you have yeah. any personal hauntings i forgot to ask you ah <sighs> I'm in the midst of something. I'm just trying to get through it. You know, like we talked about this last episode, but like when you're in the middle of a haunting, it, like you're just trying to survive. Yeah, you're just trying to keep your head above water. Yeah. And then when the haunting is over and you've had time to digest it, then it's safe to speak publicly about right. it. Right. Yes. Yes. But we don't know what the outcome is yet. So I can't yes. like talk about it because I'm like, what's What's happen? happening? I know it. Yeah. yeah. Again, that's just part of life, I guess. Right. You get real haunted and... And that's it. There's no resolution. (laughs) Life has its ups and downs. That's it. It's positive hauntings and it's negative hauntings. And you know what? Stick around and keep a tally. And then when you're on your deathbed, you can pull out that tally and be like, you know what? My life was mostly positive hauntings. Look at this tally I've kept. Love that for us. Love that for everyone. Congratulations. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Are you ready to tell me your story? Yeah, this story, I feel like we've talked about part of it. But a lot of times when I have stories where I went down the rabbit hole, I have false memories. I think that we talked about it, but actually it's just me on my path to talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I can definitely vibe with that because sometimes I'll think we've talked about something. So I'll go back and listen to different episodes and I'm like, oh, no, no, no. You know what it was? I was going to talk about it, but then I decided not to go down that rabbit hole in a different story. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's like I've read it before, but we haven't talked about it. Another weird thing that happened is I heard recently that deja vu like I've always thought of deja vu as being like this is showing that you're on the right path because you're like fulfilling what it is that you've already done to be successful or whatever okay but then I recently heard that actually the more deja vu you get it just shows that you're more depressed because it's like a symptom of a phenomena called depersonalization derealization where like you can also have out-of-body experiences but I'm like that's so depressing to think you had an out-of-body experience but then it's like no Nope, you're just really depressed. <laughs> it's like, just 
don't tell them that. Just yeah. be like, yeah, you had an out-of-body experience. Yeah, you did, and you're special, you're right. and it's okay, and it's done with now, yeah. and here are the tools to avoid it in the future. Yeah, like, yeah. we don't have to label it as haunted or you're depressed. You're right. clinically depressed or you had an out-of-body experience. We don't have to make that distinction. <laughs> Wait, so are you about to tell me about deja vu? Yes, when, no, yes. I just was saying, when I was researching this episode, I kept being like, we've talked about this. We've done this. Oh, you had deja vu about this topic. Right, but I was like, perhaps I'm just clinically depressed right now. I don't know. But either way, we're going to tell the story, so let's do it. I'm buckling the fuck up. Today's story is about the battle of good versus evil, greed and charity. And while the details of this story have been challenged and heavily debated among skeptics, there are quite a few surviving documents that stand the test of time, making this story leave an imprint in the paranormal community. Alyssa is making uh, faces. Well, I'm literally like running through topics in my brain. Like, what could this be about? What could this be about? What is something that you think we've covered before that sounds familiar, but I can't think of anything. Mm, interesting. What's the opposite of deja vu? There is amnesia. A- yeah. <laughs> Our story today takes us back almost 100 years. It's 1924, and Chicago is booming. Only four years prior, in 1920, the nation had turned dry. During the period known as Prohibition, the sale and production of alcohol had been made illegal across the U.S. However, That didn't stop criminals from cashing in on America's love affair with booze. In fact, it only served to make drinking that much more rewarding for America's professional criminals who created bars and nightclubs known as speakeasies, which illegally sold alcohol. I came to Chicago with $40 in my pocket. We had to make a living. I was younger than I am now and thought I needed more. I didn't believe in prohibiting people from getting the things they wanted. Although prohibition was in effect nationwide, one city alone became a safe haven for bootleggers who had been made richer and bolder by their success during prohibition. I thought prohibition was an unjust law, and I still do. That safe haven was a city called Chicago. Maybe why this time period sounds familiar is because when we talked about the Beast of Bray Road, we Mm -hmm. talked a little tiny bit about Prohibition (laughs) in Chicago, but we didn't go in depth at all. Yeah, this doesn't really have anything to do with anything. It's just a good intro. You know what? I'm here for it. By the mid-1920s, an estimated 1,300 gangs were operating in Chicago alone. According to the police, I'm a hardened criminal. A giraffe couldn't swallow my police record. Too long. These gangs were no ordinary street gangs. The profits of bootlegging allowed gangs to buy off anyone who opposed them, like city officials, politicians, and even the Chicago Police Department. The professional criminals of the Prohibition were almost unstoppable, as they had been outfitted with Tommy guns and were known to brutally murder rival gangs and enemies in public. The police investigating the crimes were often paid off to eliminate evidence 
or simply not prosecute the heinous crimes. Even the FBI was found to be bought off by bootleggers and the mafia. Those few brave enough to try to take down these super criminals were outgunned and outmanned. The city of Chicago had become a hotbed for crime, leaving first responders like police, healthcare workers, and firefighters to clean up the mess. Chicago had become run by the mob, and anyone who said otherwise was quickly disposed of. Mobsters, hoodlums, broads, malls, gats, and rods. A puddings on the spot, rubbings out, and takings for a ride. Chicago was literally like Gotham City. We have all these first responders that are getting their asses kicked by gangs with huge egocentric leaders that are famous. Al Scarface Capone, you know, Babyface. We have people who are so famous and so rich and so successful that they're literally murderers, but we're just letting them walk around free and we're taking pictures of them and then giving them like funny nicknames. Yeah. You know what? I was actually thinking about this the other day and I don't know why. I must have seen something on TV. I don't know. But I was thinking like, what is it with like mobsters Mm -hmm. aren't viewed with the same disdain as like a serial killer even though they did a lot of fucking murdering i think about that too and i think it's because the motive behind a mobster is money and the motive behind a serial killer is like fucked up like i really like the way skin feels (laughs) when it's being sliced by a thick knife and like because we live in a capitalist society they're like oh you murder for money That's normal. You know what? I think also part of the draw, now that you've said that, I agree with you, is also that we generally distrust our own government and Mm. the mob was like directly middle finger to the government. Like the government can't touch me. That's pretty cool. But like the murdering and stuff is like not that cool. No, that's bad. There's no way to make it positive, (laughs) to be honest with you. Yeah, I feel like it's disrespectful to try, right? Right. Yeah, like we can't defend murder. There are parts of this story that will be a little disrespectful, by the way. Uh I just want to acknowledge that so you guys aren't like, wow, that's so disrespectful because I said it first. Okay. So Chicago's literally Gotham. All these first responders like the police and the firefighters and and, uh, emergency responders are getting their asses kicked by like supervillains, essentially. In fact, during this time period in the Roaring Twenties, a lot of changes in how we train our first responders happened. We see a lot more emphasis on training and specializing where before it was like, oh, I'm going to be a nurse just because I believe in helping people. And they're like, great, here's your little hat. Here's your dress. Put on your white shoes. You're about to be sexually harassed by a doctor and you can't do anything about it. Here's your pamphlet. Let's go. Same with a firefighter. It's like, you are tall. You have strong muscles. Your dad was a firefighter. Perfect. Perfect. Only requirements. (laughs) Now they're starting to be like, hey, actually, we realize that if we train one person to be really good at putting out an oil fire and another person at uncoiling a hose, that person can uncoil the hose and give it to the person who's fighting the oil fire. And it works a lot better than just two people running into a burning building. (laughs) No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's like almost a factory system or assembly line, I think is what I'm trying to say, where it's like, okay, you are assigned X activity, you Mm -hmm. are assigned Y, you are assigned Z, and now go. And then you get that activity done 
way faster when everyone's just doing one little part instead of everyone trying to grab the hose. Right. Everyone trying to put out a fire. It's like a team. Like if you're on a soccer team, you have some people doing defense. Some person's a goalie. Some person's like a forward. If everybody is being the goalie, then it doesn't work. Then it's even more boring (laughs) than soccer already is. Wow. Fighting words there. It is. I'm sorry to our Europeans. Essentially, we had to become more skilled and more organized to fight organized skilled criminals. Mm. The day is April 18th, 1924. Does that day mean anything to you? April 18th, 1924? Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't mean anything to me. Mm. That's really cold of you. That's <laughs> not your birthday. I was looking at you. I was like, is that her birthday? No. No. Like, you guys should have just seen the terror sweep across well, I was Allie's like, what space am I where she's like, there is a date where I don't have a bullet point. Oh, you know what? I figured out what it is. It's two days before 420 blazes. <laughs> this particular day happened to be Good Friday that year. For the firefighters working at engine company number 107, it was a day like any other, keeping clean and organized while awaiting a call into danger. Firefighters during the 1920s were upheld in the community as being these highly trained, highly skilled, brave, and altruistic public servants who had dedicated their lives to fighting and extinguishing fires. They were seen as heroes and they had to have good temperament to work under high stress conditions as a team. Additionally, the cityscape of Chicago had changed greatly as buildings grew taller and fires became less predictable because infrastructure was made with synthetic building materials where only a few years prior, everything was like wood or brick or stone. Right. Firefighters during that time had to adapt and learn on the job. They really didn't know how these new, taller, bigger buildings built with synthetic building materials were going to react. That's scary to think about. Yeah. Like the coding changes and the city starts building using only one material that's never been used before. And then the firefighters are like, well, we hope that we can put out the fire. A lot of what we know now about fireproofing tall buildings and how to build things that are up to code and how to even navigate buildings on fire have been learned through the sacrifices of these early firefighters. And I wanna really drive home that they were primitive firefighters. Now firefighters have gas mask things that go over them and like these goggles and all of this stuff that help them to see through the smoke and allow them to breathe through it. Where these early firefighters didn't have breathing apparatuses. So they literally were just people running into a building. And so they would run to the window and like take a gulp of air into their mouth and then like hold their breath and run back in and fight the fire. Oh my God. Insane, right? That is a nightmare. Additionally, now that more synthetic building materials were being used, fumes had become thicker and way more toxic. It wasn't until 1982 that breathing apparatuses became mandatory for all firefighters. Isn't that crazy? That's That's so recent. I know. You would think that they figured that out in like the 40s, like when we had gas masks and stuff for war. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Like we were giving those apparatuses to our soldiers, but not to our firefighters. I don't know. That's weird to think about. It is weird. Basically, this was like an intense fucking job for like crazy, brave, adrenaline junkie, like save my country. Like this is Captain America. Yeah. Yeah. Firefighter Frank Levy held the title of Pipeman. He was known at Engine Company 107 to be cheerful and talkative with his peers. But today, he had a heaviness that was uncharacteristic for Frank. As Frank used his hands to wash a firehouse window, he didn't engage with anyone around him. Some of his peers attempted to get a rise out of Frank or to get a smile or to cheer him up, but Frank didn't laugh at any of the other firefighters' jokes 
He didn't smile. He didn't even say hello to anyone that day. Some said that he was gloomy, but others said maybe he was just focused on the task at hand. Frank's concentration remained unbroken on washing the firehouse window in front of him. Silence. Until the silence was broken by none other than Frank Levy himself. In a declaration said with heartbroken acceptance, Frank leaned his hand up against the glass window he was washing and told his peers that today was the day he was going to die. What? Frank had a foreboding sense of impending death that washed over his entire body. And he had no doubt that today would be his last day on earth. Although his co-workers brushed off Frank's dramatic premonition as just a bad day, Frank couldn't shake the feeling that something terrible was about to happen to him. Some oral traditions state that Frank said, this is my last day with the fire department and was then quiet, while other oral traditions lean heavily on Frank saying that he was going to die. I mean, either way... It's definitely like a very spooky thing to just say to your coworkers. Yeah, especially when you work as a firefighter where the threat of death is like super real. Yeah, but also like, you know, I think nowadays if if my coworker said to me, oh, this is my last day with the company, I'd be like, oh, shit, you're quitting. Mm -hmm. But especially back in the day where even now it's super fucking hard to get into the fire department. I have some friends who have been working in the volunteer fire department for like a really long time, hoping for their chance. You know, they have to work other jobs and then they get called and they go fight fires on the side of the freeway whenever like an arson decides to throw something into the hills of California. Right. But they like don't get that chance, you know, because it's so competitive. It's so Mm -hmm. competitive to actually get into a paying non-voluntary position in the fire department. I am sure it was, if not the same, same more so back in the day like the types of jobs you can have back in the day are like oh it's the 1920s well I'm either going to yeah I'm gonna cobble together some pieces of leather that no one's gonna buy and then I go bankrupt and I die of consumption or like I'm gonna hang out with the mob and do crime like I feel like there weren't any options maybe Mm -hmm. I'm totally wrong and I just don't know enough about the 20s you could be a sex worker or a nurse also as a man I feel like (laughs) back then they were super crazy about like gendered work like I don't think a man uh, well then you'd be the only male sex worker imagine how rich you oh no no I'm sure they existed (laughs) and I'm sure they were fucking rolling in it but I'm saying that I feel like society was way more oppressive in the 20s right about like gender roles so I think if you got a position as a firefighter you probably would never want to quit you okay, like, see what you're saying yeah like you're in that position and then you just you're gonna do it until you die or until you retire so that's what makes me think he's not saying hey I'm quitting my job yeah he's literally saying like some shit's gonna happen to me today and I'm not gonna be here anymore right like, physically on this earth right because like no one would ever quit a job yes. willingly that was this good exactly yeah. that's what I'm saying like they're revered as heroes and probably get a lot of 
pussy and like <laughs> right get Tons. paid pretty well for the time they I'm just sure. get paid in pussy yeah which how could anyone say no to that in general <laughs> the reason that i am telling you guys like how some people say this and some people say this because if you look this story up yourself you'll see that this is very highly debated this story among people because this story is part of like chicago's lore you know mm. kind of like how the jersey devil is to people in new jersey yeah. like everyone knows about it everyone has like a different angle on the story everyone's talking everyone about talks it. about it right so you kind of have to be like this is what some people say this is what some people say almost as if in response to frank's premonition a streetcar conductor who was off duty noticed flames rising from a building several blocks away. The conductor pulled the fire alarm switch, and the Chicago Fire Departments responded. Some say Frank told the captain that he would finish washing the window when he returned, and others say Frank left without mentioning his return. Here is a photo of the firefighters fighting in 1924 at this fire. Oh, this is these are photos of the fire. This is a photo from the fire, and I'll wow. show you some more in a minute. So Natalia is showing me a black and white photo of a group of firemen standing in what appears to be like a burnt out wall of a building, mm-hmm. and there's just rubble mm-hmm. all around them and this crazy thick white smoke that's like settling around their heads. So and Again, no breathing apparatuses. No. They're just raw dogging this <laughs> toxic fumes. Yeah. Yeah. And they're all wearing like dark capes, essentially. <laughs> it To me, it just reminds me so much of like Batman, this story, yeah. just because everyone's like looks like a villain and it's Batman. Just after 7 p.m., the first fire crews arrived at 1363 South Blue Island Avenue, a four-story brick building known as Curran's Hall. Five squads were working to extinguish the fire at Curran Hall. At first, the blaze appeared to be minor, and the firemen were making easy work of the fire as they fought from both the inside and the outside of the building. However, some witnesses noticed strange anomalies within the fire. Hmm. Witnesses like head just shot up when she heard anomaly. Witnesses claimed the fire ran down the stairs as if it was a burning sheet of liquid. The fire appeared to travel like a serpent along a wire and ran through the building at a pace similar to the way an oil fire spreads. But it didn't make sense. This building didn't have oil lines in it. It shouldn't be burning that way. Several hoses wound their way in through the building, and from the outside, the upper floors were also accessed by ladder. So I want you to imagine you have this four-story, bulky-ass brick building, like 1924 brick building. The whole thing's on fucking fire. And you have five crews of firefighters that are there. So there's tons of men there. Some of them have their ladders and their cars outside sort of like propped up against the wall so that they can access the top floors. Some of the men are running in and out of the building and they're rescuing civilians and getting some people out. At first they think, oh, this is like, we're going to make easy work of this fire, right? Like it just started. We got here because they were only 
only a few blocks away. We're like, have way more men, got tons of hoses, like everything's good. But then the fire starts to sort of turn on them and they and they notice that the fire is spreading in a way that's not natural. And some of the firemen even notice that there's two entry points, it looks like, that the fire started at. Now, I can never understand like how people see like a burnt up pile of dust and they're like, oh, this was arson. Like, oh, it seems like someone left the stove on versus like, oh, this was a car fire that happened in the garage. Like, I'm sure there are ways to be able to tell because you can be like oh it was really hot here for longer than it was here or like whatever this burned up first yeah yeah but like i can't do that so like i don't know how to explain it but they were doing that we're not fire scientists so (laughs) fire forensics yes but the but the image of a like snake mm-hmm. made of fire it's so scary slithering downstairs coming straight for you is horrifying so the fire starts to turn as the fire starts to grow it becomes this inferno and early on the firefighters you know were like oh this is fine now that their tune has totally changed they don't have any breathing apparatuses so they're taking turns passing the hose around the fire and then one guy will like run over to the window and breathe for a second and then switch, take the hose, run back in as the other guy like runs to the window and is breathing for a few moments and they're passing each other as they're going in and out. And this is like a ton of people doing this. So it's pandemonium, right? Like you can barely see anything. There's people yelling everywhere. There's a hose going off. There's smoke. It's hot. People running past each other because you're like taking every other gulp of air basically to run to the window. Yeah, it sounds super chaotic. Totally. Several civilians are rescued from within the building. And one of these rescued civilians returns back into the building to help save others and put out the fire. That's like a level of bravery that I don't know if I have that like in me. Yeah. To And this is not like me being funny, like I'm being serious. I don't know that I could see a crumbling building hotter than anything you can imagine Mm-hmm. And just running into it. I mean, I guess if you had, though, if like your family was in there or like your pets were in there, I maybe that like you don't even think and you just act like moms that lift cars off of their babies, right. you know, but it's that's crazy to think about, like just a civilian running back into the fire. I recently went to Arizona and that's how I felt getting off the plane is I was like, holy fuck, people have chosen to come here. They've chosen to come here and they've stayed here and it's not against their will. They've been like, this is a good place to be. I enjoy being in this environment that is much like a house on fire. (laughs) Yeah. A few moments passed as the firefighters and the civilians continued to exit the building. The firefighters almost had the fire under control but the damage had been done. The heavy brick walls began to buckle inward. The building collapsed inward in on itself, and a wall of heavy bricks and debris came crashing down on all inside. The weight of the roof pushed the wall onto the firefighters who were fighting from the outside as well, trapping both firefighters in and outside the building. So even like like you make it out of the building, but you're still not safe. Right, like, like the building could fall on you. It just crashes on your head. I know we talk about this too much, so I won't bring it up that much, but 
fuck like imagine how scary it would have been to like survive the twin towers like you fucking hundred story buildings two of them came crashing down i don't know if if you've ever seen um or if any of our listeners have ever seen that documentary it was like two guys from france that were we've talked about this we before. have yes and they were following the firefighters yes, around that that and documentary just happened that 9-11 happened that yes, day and they were following them that documentary is terrifying haunting horrifying like you will not feel okay after you watch it it's one of those documentaries where it's honestly probably one of the best documentaries ever but like i don't think it'll ever be popular or get the recognition deserves because it's too hard to watch yeah it's horrifying absolutely horrifying i do recommend if you haven't seen it to like watch it at least once um to our haunties but yeah it's one of those things where it's so hard to watch that i don't think you could like really watch it right like we can barely handle a theory proposed to us that if we continue to live the way we're living the earth is gonna not have a good time and we're like no i can't think about this i won't look like how are we supposed to watch a tragedy unfolding before our very eyes with professional video equipment yeah Ugh. After this building implodes in on itself, the fire was snuffed out, but the emergency had shifted from fighting a fire to rescuing those who were trapped alive or recovering their bodies. Because the falling walls had knocked out the electricity, it added to the difficulty and they had to bring portable lighting in. Several firefighters combed the wreckage searching for survivors and bodies, but it was too late. More than 20 firefighters were injured and the civilian who was helping rescue had been killed as well. Frank Levy was one of those killed in the fire. Wow. The funerals the following week had 125 Chicago firefighters detailed as honorary escorts for the services. The civilian who died saving others was honored at these processions, with firefighters acting as pallbearers of his casket. This was a symbol of monumental respect, as it was the first time a civilian was honored with firefighters in Chicago's history. Wow. I know when I first read that, I was like, I'm also on my period, but I like got a tear in my eye because I was like, that's like a fucking such a sad thing. It's like, you know, you're fucking dead and you're honored along with like the firefighters and you don't know. You don't even know. I know that's the part that like is so it's you know what? That's another interesting like psychological thing we can talk about some other time. But (laughs) like, well, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds because I am don't like death. But funerals in general are very interesting to me because it's like that person doesn't know that like you're honoring them but it is it feels disrespectful to not honor them you know like even though it probably makes no difference well they always say that the funeral is not for the person who died it's for like the family members and the living and i think i talked about this on like season one and it was like shitty audio so like we'll never hear about it so i'll just (laughs) talk about it again but they say that like part of us as being humans like we're social creatures because we've adapted to sort of living in like socials community settings is that we have rituals for major life events like marriage and death and birth and all of these things that are like really hard to comprehend sort Mm -hmm. of yeah they're abstract yeah they're abstract so we give ceremony or ritual to these things to help it to feel like we're controlling it or to help it to feel like it's going to plan because we really don't have control over things like love or birth or death 
right? Totally. Yeah, yeah. You have no control. You can do everything right and you still might not have a healthy child. You can do everything right and still have a miscarriage. Yeah. You can do everything right and still get a divorce. You know, you can right. do everything right and never get married. Right. You can never meet somebody. Never meet somebody. Yeah. You could be like the most fantastic person on earth and <laughs> this is very depressing and just like never find your person. Right. I don't know what the point of this entire <laughs> rant was. But having a ceremony right. for people who never find their soulmate is like, makes you feel better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also like, we're all here by chance. Everything's random. Nothing has any meaning. So let's assign our own meaning through right. ritual. Right. It makes us go. feel better. And like, we're on the right path. I see right. what you're saying. Yeah. 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 The day after this tragic building collapse, some of the firefighters noticed something really strange at the firehouse. There was a strange stain on the window that Frank Levy had been cleaning. It looks like a smudge. So the firehouse staff tried to remove it with soap, thinking that perhaps it was some ash or some grease or some dirt left over from the fire when all of the men had came back and showered Perhaps some of this dust or dirt settled there. So they're trying to clean it off, but the smudge isn't moving. So they put soap on it. It doesn't work. They try to scrub it off, but the mark doesn't move. They even try razor blades. It doesn't move. As they're trying to get this thing off through every means that they have, the shadow on the window is actually seeming to be expanding. Over the next few days, the smudge grows into a much larger and clearer image. It was a handprint. The handprint was exactly in the same spot where Frank had leaned his hand against the window and told the firehouse he was going to die that day. Oh, shit. That's creepy. According to the legend, every single fireman assigned to engine company number 107 had tried to remove this handprint. They had used water, soap, acid, ammonia, several different cleaning agents and solvents, even scraping it with razor blades, but nothing was working. So eventually they called in the experts. The Pittsburgh Plate Glass Company was called in, and one of the glaziers at that company had heard years later that everyone at that company had applied their strongest chemical solvents to the handprint and still wasn't able to remove it. Oh my god. As the tradition says, Levy's thumbprint was even obtained from his personal records, and they compared the print on the window with his thumbprint, and they matched perfectly what is happening how crazy is that, that like is there's just crazy. a black fucking handprint like imagine i come into this office one day and i'm like fuck lgh like this is my last day here and i like and you walk outside and get hit by a bus right and then tomorrow you're like oh my god there's a handprint where she said fuck lgh yeah what would it mean <laughs> would you keep it there or would you try to remove it well i don't own this office space so right. if you died and lgh shut down right. then i would assume i would have to like move everything out of here you wouldn't just replace me why would i replace you I don't know, because it's like positive haunting. <laughs> no, that doesn't make any sense. That never works. I feel like if there is a show out there that starts with two hosts, 
you got to end with the same two hosts or the show just ends because there are times where like shows try to replace main characters or try to replace hosts and it just never works like oh. the fan base turns i thought you were gonna be like no i couldn't do it without you because it'd be too sad but you well, were I like mean, it's no it wouldn't be profitable it wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't work natalia it's already not profitable so definitely that's not what's happening here so the same conversation that we're having is the conversation that all these firemen are having because they just lost one of their yeah. comrades right? right like one of their men but also it's scary you walk in every day and you are just reminded it would be like if my face got smashed against this wall by a burglar and I died and then you come in the next day and all the dust has settled in the perspiration of like my horrifying face print and now you're like well guess I've just got to hang out in this room final moments on the wall so scary like if someone dies in your house like it's sad but you eventually come around to cleaning up their stuff and like putting it out and things like that that's not what we're talking about we're talking about if someone died and they had like a sweaty handprint or like a bloody stain somewhere and especially if you can't remove it like you just have to remember that horrible moment that horrible loss and horrible tragedy every day that you walk by that handprint and see that yeah Yeah. and also too just be like oh my god he told us this was gonna happen we could have been prepared for it like i'm sure they just had so many things going through their head yeah so there was a lot of talk about what to do with the handprint some people said that they should get rid of it other people were like no it's a nice like memory you know he's here with us whatever some people were like okay we should just get rid of this whole fucking window and other people were like no no no, it's disrespectful to do that in light of this tragedy that happened after 9-11 there was a lone american flag erected by the firefighters and like who's the asshole that's like it's been like three months should we take this down right or like the lone i think there was one or two trees that survived the destruction of the twin towers that like what weren't hit and now they're like fenced off like you can go see them i think it's called like the freedom tree or something right yeah in oklahoma city there's this oklahoma city building that was bombed by timothy mcveigh and if you go to oklahoma city there's a big memorial there and they have a tree there and i I honestly think it's called the fucking freedom tree well uh turns out it's not that special and there's (laughs) multiple freedom trees that's like a phenomena like when something bad happens in a tree like survives it becomes a freedom tree it's reborn as a patriot The tree is like, I literally don't give a fuck about this country. And then we fence it off. And force it to live here forever. And say that it's free. (laughs) Some people thought that perhaps Frank was leaving them a message from the other side. Or perhaps it was a symbol that brought comfort to some of those peers that were mourning. Either way, eventually they decided that it was worse luck to try and mess with the unknown. They were like, okay, this thing clearly is like wants to be here. We've tried to get rid of it. And I think if we like really try to get rid of it, something haunted is going to happen. So they just decided to leave the window pane there as a reminder of that man who knew his time was up. That handprint became a fixture at Firehouse 107 until April 18th, 1944. 20 years after Frank's death, a paper boy accidentally shattered the window <gasps> when he threw the morning paper through no. the glass. Did they jail him immediately? <laughs> I don't think. Th- I think they didn't care, did, really. Did they, like, throw him in the freedom tree? <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. I'm imagining, like, the uh, newspaper getting thrown in there. And then you know that scene from Anchorman where Baxter, the dog, gets kicked off the bridge. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, yeah. no! Yeah. 
yeah. I'm in a glass case of emotion. Yeah, I'm just imagining someone like reacting that way to the handprint. You know what? This is my brain is all over the place today. And for some reason, I'm just thinking about the freedom tree becoming our president. <laughs> okay, that is amazing. We've been talking about like some merch, you guys. I think that needs to be it. I think it needs to be the freedom tree in the Oval Office in front of that desk. Like with freedom like a tree for president right. 2024. Which is like that. A tree with like a beautiful tree wearing like a tie with like but it's an American in jail. flag. It has a fence around it still. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's deep. I love it. <laughs> to go back to the story, they should have at least find that paper boy because that's 20 years of someone's last moments preserved on glass. We'll, we'll, we'll go to the theories and perhaps yeah. see what it could mean. Some people who are like not that cool say that perhaps this happened in 1946, but other people say it was 1944. Yeah, I like 1944 better. But in both stories, it's again on the anniversary, April 18th. <sighs> yeah, that's crazy. According to the lore, that handprint became known as, quote, the hand of death, end quote, and all of the firefighters who stayed in Firehouse 107 knew this tale. It spread throughout all of the Chicago firefighting community. And firefighters today still tell this tale of Frank Levy's handprint and his prediction that he was going to die and how it was like impossible to remove his handprint. Here's a photo that survives from the Chicago Times from 1939 of a firefighter in front of the handprint. Oh shit, there's a picture of this handprint? Yeah. Okay, guys. So Natalia is showing me a black and white photo of a... Is that a police officer or a firefighter? Firefighter or an officer of some sort. But yeah. they're standing in front of a window. It's clear as day. Like, it's literally a full on five fingers, right. a palm, yeah. handprint. Yeah. It and it's looks, filled in. It looks like someone dipped their hand in black paint and slapped it on the window. Yes. Like a chimney sweep. <laughs> dipped his hand in soot and yeah smacked it on a window right exactly and then this guy we who this official man firefighter or whoever is just staring at it it's very haunted yeah super haunted that's extremely haunted you can see all of these pictures that we're talking about on the let's get haunted instagram page if you go to let's get haunted on instagram that's right what caused the fire is a question a snake made of fire that's true but what caused that snake made of fire yeah yeah god but then what caused god <laughs> the truth is a little bit even more haunted in the years after the fire there were these owners of this sporting goods store it was like a sporting good and novelty store that was on the second floor of that brick building mm. and they were charged with and convicted for arson and oh. murder what? Apparently, the owners had spread wood alcohol throughout the building and started a fire so that they could cash in on this insurance policy for $32,000. Wow. So the snake moving through like was actually fire catching on to the wood alcohol. That's why the fire burned from seemingly from the inside, like from like interesting points and had like all those anomalies is that it was arson. In an article for mysterioushicago.com, there was a writer who basically saw like saw all the information that I told you, saw the pictures, heard the story and whatever. And instead of being like, oh my God, that's amazing. They were like, you know what? 
I'm going to put my fedora on and I'm going to say that while I can really appreciate that this is an interesting and fun story that brings Chicagoans together and unites us, I don't know that it has that much credence to it. And so what I will attempt to do is I will attempt to prove why we perhaps cannot uh, say that this is perhaps, in fact, a true story. Jail. (laughs) I put that man in jail. But an amazing, amazing thing happened is that he writes this thing where he's trying to be super PC, but he's like, you know, he's fucking skeptic. So he's trying to not be emotional and basically is just like, yeah, like, you know, the photos or whatever could have been doctored. I don't know. I I haven't ever seen them in an actual article or whatever. And like this Frank Levy guy, like who knows if he actually even existed. Like I've heard this story so many times and it's been so many different things and different dates and whatever. Like, shouldn't there be some documentation surviving? And a bunch of people commented on this article and were like fuck you here's this the fucking sources here's this and like a ton of people were like i'm related to this person here's my story so that writer was met with fierce opposition from several chicago residents who claimed heritage to frank and the tragedy that had happened including photographic evidence that frank was real and had been a fallen firefighter frank levy's badge is on display at the fire training academy as a part of this memorial that has the badges of almost every fallen firefighter some of them couldn't have been recovered so they're replicas wait so this skeptic journalist couldn't even do the legwork to realize that there's a badge on display with this name somewhere someone else sent in a picture of it here's the photo of it from this fallen firefighter memorial plaque you know what natalia and i are not journalists but compared to this guy we are the best journalists Okay, so I'm looking at a photograph of a wall that has several badges on it, but the photo is zoomed in on one in particular. It's a circle. It has a firefighter's hat on the top, and inside the circle it says Chicago Fire Department, Engine 107. And then underneath, there's a little plaque that says Francis Levy, April 1924. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Oh, boom. Congratulations. Um, We've debunked the skeptics. So one commenter on that article said, this is a true story. I've done research on the Koran Hall fire, and my great-grandfather was one of the firemen who was killed with Mr. Levy. There is a photo of Francis Levy in the Chicago Tribune, page 2, April 19, 1924 issue. And there are photos of the handprint in Fire Magazine, January 1939 issue. He, along with the others, are recognized on the Chicago Firemen's Memorial and their badges are on display at the Fire Academy. I've been working on getting the names of the 10 firemen added to the National Firemen's Memorial. If someone is a descendant of any of the firemen from Curran Hall, they can go to the National Fallen Firefighters Project Roll Call website and add their information to be informed on any future plans for recognizing them. And thanks for sharing this story, by the way. This one is very interesting because it also highlights some true Chicago heroes from Anne, Chicago, Illinois. Hell yeah, Anne. <laughs> Anne's a haunty. I know. She came with receipts. She did. That's and what you have to do for the skeptics. It's so awesome. Like, I'm, I'm so stoked on that. And so then there's a few other commenters who also responded and had some interesting things to say. Another commenter wrote, Mr. Levy was the best man at my grandfather's wedding, John Nachel. We always heard about the story of the handprint from my grandfather, John Nachel. (laughs) Another commenter said, good evening. Francis X. Levy is my grandfather. He died when my mother was seven and her brother was two. He certainly wasn't a ghost, but a real person who died with many other firemen. 
My grandmother never remarried and always told what a wonderful man he was, and my mother was a little girl who was sad that he wasn't there with her and her brother. I am blessed to have had such a wonderful grandfather that I never met, but I know is watching out for me. Sincerely, Madeline Estes from Memphis, Tennessee. Boom. But also, how fucking frustrating would that be? Like, you're literally living your life. Your grandpa's a fucking hero. He dies. Right. It's sad. Everyone, there's like generational trauma about it. Like, but we're all working through it together and it bonds us and blah, blah, blah. Like, this is a great story in our history and we got fucking newspaper clippings and put it in a scrapbook. Okay. And then yeah. this fedora man comes along and he's like, Milady, but are you sure you had a grandfather at all? Right. Like just doing the most to gaslight the shit out of you and your family history and something that clearly like shaped you. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to like uh, say that he was a dick because I don't want people to go and like cyber bully this person. Oh, or whatever. of course. They, not. After all of these comments that I'm going to read, they turned the comments off and they updated the article with like all of the sources, sources and everything underneath it. He learned his lesson. He, we don't nobody needs to cyber bully him at this point. He yeah, learned. I don't think you can because I was trying to figure out what his name was for the source <laughs> and I couldn't find it on there either. So I think maybe they were just like, all right, I can't take this down because now it's like one of the only things online about this tragedy that has like tons of sources and pictures and all these people commented on this so it's going to be like more fucked up if i take it down because before i thought this was just a stupid ghost story and now someone's like you're talking about my grandfather yeah well also that's kind of a beautiful character arc there's this gaslighting fedora wearing reddit (laughs) mod who then realizes the error of his ways and comes around and like updates the article to be like oh my bad like here's all of the sources for people who are interested in this story that's great i think Mm -hmm. that's a great redemption arc i do too two more comments because i think that these ones are very illuminating Another person said, yes, the story of the fire is certainly true. Levy's name is all over the records, including newspaper accounts of the fire, the fireman's monument by the stockyard gates, etc. I was unsure before I did the research because plenty of ghost stories are going around had no basis in fact. Did your dad ever see the handprint? I'd love to hear about it from a firsthand witness. No one seems to have any photos of it other than the photo from the fire magazine. Another person said, this story actually is true. Frank Levy was a real person, and I know this because he was my great uncle. I found this story in a book, and I asked my dad about it, and he told me that there really was his handprint left on the firehouse from the day he died. So that's the end of that story. That's crazy. Now we're going to get into the theories, and like one of these theories is actually the best thing that's ever happened, (laughs) and uh, I can't wait to share it with you guys. So theory number one is this skeptic theory, essentially, is that Frank was cleaning the windows, and perhaps he was cleaning with some sort of material that they didn't use the right solvent to get it off. So there was cleaning solution left and they tried all of these different things, but it didn't work because it was basically not like a ghostly handprint. It was just a, a smudge they couldn't get out. I don't like that one. Yeah, I don't think it makes sense because they literally brought in everything to try to get rid of this and like no one could figure it out. Also, let's not invalidate all these people that say they were related to this guy and that like say that the story about the handprint is true. You know what I mean? Like if enough people are saying that something happened, it probably did so i believe that the handprint was there i believe that they couldn't get it out and i believe some little whippersnapper threw a (laughs) A uh, newspaper a newspaper too hard and shattered it and perhaps he carried a lot of guilt with him until the day he died right yeah 
Yeah, it could have been. The next theory is that it was a spiritual imprint from mm. the other side. Like it was, uh, you know, a relic of Frank's sort of like an, an apparition, but yeah. it was left behind. The third theory is pretty offensive depending on who oh, you uh-oh. are but i'm just gonna say it because uh, it's out there it's out there some people think that perhaps might have been paid off by those arsonists and that's why he was like oh today's the day i'm gonna die and, oh. and then his family like collected the money points towards this theory are that after this happened there was like a bunch of money raised by the city to help frank's family so perhaps the money could have been funneled through that donation, kind of like they did in Breaking Bad. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have seen that. But I, I don't know. I'm not going to spend too much time on that one because... Well, but in order for that to be true, then like he had no way of knowing his handprint would even be noticed. You know, like, the true. only reason why people were raising money for him in particular, right, is because they're like, oh my God, he said this creepy thing and now there's a permanent handprint that we can't get That's out true. of That's true. That glass. theory has nothing to do with why the handprint's there. So yeah. Who cares yeah and the next theory is that it's a message from the other side so mm. perhaps frank was in some sort of purgatory or some other realm oh. and he had left that handprint there to get their attention because get it, me out yeah get me out or perhaps to you know say hello we're not quite sure what he was saying maybe it was just like a hey guys you know like a graffiti like a ghostly graffiti right i don't know when i was looking into that about purgatory i found a very interesting tie a phenomena one might say that is between handprints and purgatory very similar to this Frank Levy handprint story in Chicago is another handprint story in Chicago about Resurrection Mary. Have you heard of Resurrection Mary? No. Resurrection Mary is like a folklore or like a hitchhiker tale or a ghost tale that is around this cemetery in Chicago called Resurrection Cemetery. But what's interesting about Resurrection Mary is that there are fucking burned handprints into the cemetery gates what? where she was holding on to it. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, I'm, tell- she- I'm telling you. So you're excited. So now you're going to listen to okay. this. Okay. All right. I'm listening. And then I'm going to show you the picture. So what you- the fuck? This is your motivation. Okay. Resurrection Mary is a vanishing hitchhiker slash ghost that has been reported around the Chicago Resurrection Cemetery on Archer Road. Some researchers have attempted to link Resurrection Mary to one of the many thousands of burials that are in the Resurrection Cemetery. Chicago author Ursula Bielski in 1999 documented this possible connection to Anna Norcus, who had died in a 1927 auto accident. I want you guys to remember that Ursula because she wrote this fucking blog that kicks ass that I'm about to read to you a portion of it so like I said in the 1970s Resurrection Mary seared her handprints into this gate it was the 1970s around 1 a.m. and there was a mysterious young woman who was seen inside of the cemetery so people see this woman inside of the cemetery holding on to the gate they're like oh someone's locked inside we should go help get her out. So they call the police. The police go to let the woman out, but there's nobody there. And then when they're looking, they see that the bars where the woman had been holding onto had been pried apart and it's made out of bronze metal. So they say that like the force you would need to mangle this bronze metal is beyond what a human woman could have done at that time. 
And most haunted of all, the fucking woman's seared handprints are still seen on the gate today. Look at this. Okay, Natalia is showing me a color photo of wrought iron bars of a cemetery gate, and two of them literally have crazy burn marks on them. Like, they're totally just, like, burned. And that's where the lady's hands were? Yeah. How fucking crazy is that? That's nuts. That's so fucking psycho. That lady, Ursula, we're almost to her thing, which I said is the best thing ever. So I'm just telling you, we're almost there, guys. But first, I have to tell you guys about this article that I read for Atlas Obscura that was about this museum called the Museum of Holy Souls in Purgatory. Have you heard of this museum? No, but I want to go there. Dude, this is the fucking best thing from this whole episode. Like, <laughs> we could do a whole episode on this thing, and I I'm, like, just so fucking pumped about this. So it's this fucking entire museum that just has objects of burned handprints and, like, what? burned shit that is proof of people being in purgatory, like spirits in purgatory. What? So there was this guy, this French missionary, and he was also a collector. His name was Victor Jo. And supposedly he was inspired to build this purgatory museum after there was a fire that destroyed a portion of the original church. And it left behind a scorched image of a face that he believes was trapped, like a soul trapped. The museum has this really small collection of objects that are behind this glass case. And it's in the back of this Chiesa del Sacro Cuore. Can you read Italian? Maybe you can read this. Chiesa del Sacro Cuore, uh, Church of the Sacred Heart, of the Suffragio. I don't know what su suffrage Suffragio is. I would guess. What's it called where uh, like Christ's suffering? Suffering, but passion. it's not a passion of the Christ uh, or crucifix or something. What's it called where they crucified? The crucifixion, oh, right. maybe. Right. I don't know. I don't know. Basically, it's a church, guys. And there's a fucking museum with haunted shit in it. Okay? So in this haunted church, there's this century-old museum. It's literally 100 years old. And it has this collection of Bibles, prayer books, tabletops, and articles of clothing that have been singed by the hands of souls in purgatory. Do you know what purgatory is? So, wait a minute. Okay. I, but wouldn't it be souls in hell? are singeing and burning their handprints into things. Oh, you tell me about purgatory. Maybe I just don't know what purgatory is. I thought it was like a liminal back room space where yeah. like you're sitting in a waiting room or sitting on an airplane that never lands until you go to heaven or you hell. You go to heaven or hell. I thought that too, but not anymore. <laughs> I'm Catholic now because according to the Catholic belief, the soul becomes stranded in purgatory until it atones for its sins, but it can quicken its uh, ascent to heaven if loved ones back on earth pray for it. So the person who created this museum believes that these scorched like burn marks and handprints and face marks are people on the other side in purgatory who are trying to reach out to their loved ones and be like, please pray for me so I can go to heaven. No, that is so haunted. Imagine your grandma dies and you're laying in bed one night and all of a sudden like her singed handprint appears Dude, on your be, ceiling. I would be praying so hard for my grandma. I'd be like, please get her the Please help her. Out of here. That is so scary. I'm going to cry. Some of the artifacts that are on display are handprints that have been burned into a nightcap of this man whose dead wife appeared to him asking him for prayers. In his nightcap? Yes. She grabbed his fucking nightcap and burned it with her hands? <laughs> I think at the time 
time it didn't feel like that but they like noticed that no that's the most haunted shit ever like she's so desperate to get out of purgatory she's like assaulting him like i am gonna light your head on fire if you don't start (laughs) praying for me there was also this book that had this like ghostly handprint burn mark because its owner's mother-in-law had been like hey please pray for me which is weird like i feel like your mother-in-law should go to their like child or their family not their like in-law yeah, but ma- maybe if their children are dead perhaps Look, all i know about mother-in-laws is that they're always haunted they break boundaries yeah. that's a boundary <laughs> do not fucking come haunt me like i don't even want my family to haunt me so like, yeah that is that is the ultimate mother-in-law boundary <laughs> trespass, right? Like that is like the mother-in-law final attempt at being like fuck you. Here are some photos of this shit so you can see what I'm talking about. But how crazy it is that you, there's just a church in oh Italy my God. and in the back of the church is just this thing called Museum of the Souls in Purgatory oh my that God. this guy made 100 years ago where he was like Look at this Bible. There's a handprint of a soul trapped in purgatory. Let's put it on a plaque. Let's underneath a glass let's ensure, in the back of a church. Yeah, let's ensure that this tortured soul can never escape purgatory <laughs> by literally encasing a piece of their soul in glass and putting <sighs> it on display. Holy shit. Okay, Natalia is showing me a bunch of photos from this haunted ass museum. Also, while you were talking, I looked it up and suffragio or whatever, uh, it means intercession. It says it's a biblical term. I don't know what that means. I'm not Catholic. Somebody tell me what the intercession is. Oh, maybe it's the time between like when Jesus wasn't in his body before he rose or something. I don't know. Yeah, where he was with the Easter bunny, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So these photos I'm looking at are color photos from this museum. The first one is a bunch of different things encased in glass that is then encased in glass. So like imagine a bunch of picture frames, like glass picture frames with stuff like haunted objects pressed against the glass. And then they put these picture frames inside another Mm. like glass case. Okay, then if you zoom in, you can see there is the Bible that has a sooty handprint burned into it. Then there is a cross burned into it looks like a piece of fabric with a hand that's also burned into it. Then there is, it looks like another page. I don't know if it's another Bible with like sooty burnt fingerprints into it. So scary looking though. Like you guys Horrifying. have to see these pictures on the Instagram for Let's Get Haunted. Okay, now I just have to read what I read, which is the best part of this whole fucking episode. And I'm dying because I need access to a link that was mentioned <laughs> on this and it's not fucking there. But basically it's this blog by this author and paranormal researcher named Ursula Bielski, who is also the founder of Chicago Hauntings Tours, who also wrote in that Wikipedia article about who she thinks Resurrection Mary is. And she wrote this article about this handprint phenomena. She was one of the sources I used for the Frank Levy thing. Like he was listed on there. And then underneath that was like the Resurrection Mary, like burned handprint things. And then she was like, also, my friend told me about this museum where there's like burned handprints. So here's what she said. My friend was telling me yesterday about an obscure museum in Rome where he had recorded for an electronic voice phenomenon, which was ostensibly the voices of the dead that were to be used for his experimental musical recording called 
the Phantoms of Purgatory Souls. The museum is called the Museum of Holy Souls in Purgatory, and it's tucked away in the back of the Church of Sacred Heart, the only Gothic-style church in Italy. On display is a collection of artifacts displaying burn marks reportedly made by the hands of spirits, handprints burned into the nightcap of a man whose deceased wife, yada, 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 she explains all of those. The museum was founded by French missionary priest Father Joe, who strongly believed that these artifacts are signs of the reality of purgatory. Catholics believe that when a soul leaves its earthly body, it almost always spends some time in a place called purgatory before being allowed into heaven. Purgatory is a place of repentance, amend-making, and paying off debts of sin while waiting to join God. According to Catholics, our prayers can make the difference as to the length and severity of the stay in purgatory. Some paranormal investigators believe that ghosts we encounter are these souls either asking for prayers or remaining hostile and unrepentant even in death. I sent a photograph and a short write-up to the museum about the bars at Resurrection Cemetery, although my friends said that they stopped taking artifacts when the founder passed away. Hopefully, it will at least go in their files as a further testament to this remarkable phenomenon. You can purchase the recordings for Phantoms of Purgatory Souls at Michael Esposito's website, www.phantomairwaves.com. Now, I fucking ran to that website so fast that's a dope domain name but it as was well. fucking dead what and then i tried to find the name because he essentially that guy just went to that fucking haunted museum recorded yeah. it and made an album that was just like souls of the dead Screaming. talking yeah apparently like just based off of what he recorded there and so i'm trying to find it and it wasn't on there and then i googled it and i like couldn't find it in stock anywhere there was one that was like oh it had it but it said there was only 250 available it was limited edition and it already sold out What the fuck? I know. And so I was pissed. Now back to the theory. So if he's in purgatory, maybe the paper boy destroyed the handprint at the anniversary of Frank's death. And perhaps because he had like passed on from purgatory, perhaps the the window wouldn't have broken if he hadn't have passed on. Yeah, that's a great hypothesis. Other people hypothesize as a theory that Frank was a medium that knew that that was going to happen. And that's why he was cleaning the window in the first place to be like, oh, this is where that handprint is going to show up after I die. How creepy is that? And so he's like cleaning it and he's like, I'm going to die today. I'm like in a really bad mood. (laughs) This is such a burden to have this gift of knowing when I'm going to die. Now, the last one is pretty fucking disrespectful, but Uh I'm going to tell you because I learned about it. So did you know that there's a Good Friday superstition? No. Yeah, I didn't know this either. Apparently to people who uphold like Good Friday, which are mainly like Catholic people who I really fuck with because they have museums of purgatory souls trapped in purgatory. And they have stained glass windows. Yeah. Like that's haunted and cool. When people die, they don't bury them in the ground. They like put them in a glass case and like make it so that they never age and like you can go look at them. Beautiful. (laughs) So apparently you're not supposed to do any housework on Good Friday. According to this Catholic tradition, if you do any housework, like you wash clothes or put things away or I don't know, specifically handle anything that is iron or like tools, it's bad luck. Oh, yeah, it's really unlucky. And people say that if you do any housework on that day, it's going to bring bad luck to you and your family. They say you can't garden, you can't farm and you're not supposed to touch any iron like a spade or a fork. 
it, she can't like enter the ground and break the ground. They also say that you can't plant anything or break ground. Uh, you're not supposed to wash clothes. You're not supposed to climb trees. You're not supposed to work. You can't eat or drink anything that has vinegar or nettles in it. And you're not supposed to eat meat. So a lot of those things probably happened that day. Like I know for a fact that they were washing and doing housework and holding iron stuff. Okay, but under that theory. so And working. <laughs> so if a house catches on fire on Good Friday, they're just supposed to watch it burn to the ground? Maybe it was like evil. Maybe everyone that died in there was bad. See why this well, is disrespectful? This is disrespectful, but intriguing last thing i will say that doesn't really have anything to do with anything but it was interesting is that also according to this good friday superstition baked bread that was baked on good friday will never go moldy ever that's tight it's like a really significant symbol in the catholic tradition apparently because it represents the body of christ and so they said that like according to people who believe this that because of the last supper christ told his disciples as he broke the bread this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me and so then people are like really ran with that and we're like oh bread doesn't mold on <laughs> if it's baked on good friday it's common superstition that if you take bread or cakes that are baked on good friday and you hang them from the ceiling they'll go stale but they'll never go moldy and then on top of that they have special healing properties boom that's the wow. end of the episode wow How about that, folks you know what do it do it somebody do it if you have covid right now try that hang a bread no it has to be it has to be baked on good friday oh you can't just okay i understand so you can't go to the store, buy a loaf of bread, hang it from the ceiling on Good Friday. That won't work. No, no, no. It has to be baked on oh, Good that's Friday. that's a commitment. That's like I've got to learn how to bake well, the bread. Well, it's impossible because you're not supposed to like work or do anything on oh, Good Friday. Wow. That's a real catch 22. It's a basilisk. Wow. Even hearing it, yeah. it puts you in danger. <laughs> yeah. Rocco's basilisk. <laughs> wow, Natalia, that was a great story. I had never heard of that story. I had also never heard of these singed handprints, these right. weird sooty handprints of people reaching out from the afterlife, begging you to pray for them. Yeah, it's really interesting. I also like it's annoying to me because it's like how involved in your fucking saviorness do I have to be? Right. right like right. like you. I was your friend in life. Like I was your family, whatever. <laughs> and now you're fucking gone. I still have to participate. Deal with your crazy ass. Yeah. yeah. And like the probably more toxic you are, the more you have to atone for. So the more wow. I have to pray for you. Oh, my God. No, that would... You know what? That is a nightmare. Being haunted by a toxic ghost. Because <laughs> at least I like no to think boundaries. of ghosts... Yeah, I like to think of ghosts as just being, like, leftover energy. They can't right. really harm you. They, they're they creepy. Yeah. Like, you know, but it's... They're not going to, like... Nothing I do affects that ghost, and that ghost can't affect me, right? Right. But in this scenario, if I don't pray for this ghost, it's going to keep haunting me with singed handprints and burning my nightcap yeah. and being crazy i'm trying to read a book and there's just like a page like just starts burning you know and then i can't read the book and then i try to turn the page and then it's just another handprint burning like you have you have no choice you have to pay attention <laughs> you, to the ghost can you imagine you're trying to do your homework and it just like a face keeps getting singed and you're like fuck and then the next day you go to school and teacher's like why didn't you hand in homework and you're like oh, grandma died last week yeah. and it, things aren't going well for her in the afterlife Woo. wow that was great natalia thank you so much Thanks. that was you know we haven't had a good ghost story in a while that really gave me the spooks so what do you think it was? Oh, I definitely um, love 
the idea as much as it sucks I love the idea of purgatory handprints. Hope it's not real. Hope it doesn't happen to me. I want reincarnation as everybody knows by now. But the idea of that is so intriguingly creepy Mm -hmm. that I love it. Mm -hmm. But again, please don't let it happen to me. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you eventually got out of purgatory 20 years later. Yeah, maybe. You know what? I was too quick to judge that little tyke on his paper route maybe he there was like not enough space in purgatory because it was right around the beginning of world war ii oh and so they were like okay you guys you're you get out there's overcrowding (laughs) in the purgatory we're releasing some of you yeah wow it's your lucky day frank love that love that for those poor souls frank you're a hero don't haunt us for being disrespectful no i don't think this was disrespectful at all i think if anything we have publicized that this man was a hero Absolutely. Also kind of a medium psychic, which is cool as fuck. Right. And also his handprint stayed on a window for 20 years. Like how much cooler can you get? So powerful. And also singularly took down a Reddit mod fedora wearing skeptic, man. Yeah. And turned him into a believer. (laughs) Love that. Um, Well, Natalia, as I'm thinking of my sign off here, I'm reminded that during the last portion of the show, you said that on Good Friday, you're not allowed to climb trees. And that just makes me think of the Freedom Tree. So BRB, gotta go campaign for the Freedom Tree and get them into office. Freedom Tree 2024. Bye. Bye.